This is tape number two in our six-tape Galatians series. This tape corresponds to our Life for Today series, tape number 103. And on this tape, I teach from Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 21. Real quickly, let me just say a few things reminding you of the previous teaching out of the first chapter. The book of Galatians was written to the churches in the area of Galatia, Uh, Specifically, the predominant ones there are Lystra, Derby, and Iconium. These are places that Paul visited on all three of his missionary journeys, and they had fallen into a deception through legalistic Jews. These were Jews who had believed that Jesus was the Christ, but they didn't believe that just putting faith in Jesus as the Messiah was enough, that you also had to be holy and that you had to keep the Old Testament law. And so Paul was writing this letter to counter that deception, and he came out very strong against this. I mean, nearly in a vicious way. I don't think that that's actually a proper way to describe it. I'm sure it was motivated by love. He even says some things in here about how much he loved these people. Uh, It wasn't vicious, but it certainly was harsh in comparison to some of his other treatments. I mean, he was just really concerned about this situation, and he was dealing strong with these Galatians, trying to get them to come back to just absolute faith in Christ and Christ alone. And so that's what the first chapter began to talk about. And as he was making this point, he made such a strong statement. He says, If anybody preaches a different gospel unto you than that which I have preached, let him be accursed. And then he repeated it and says, Again, I say unto you, If any man, even an angel from heaven, preaches any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. Now, these are such strong statements that most people would rebel at this. So he began to start giving them reasons why he could be that emphatic. And basically, the first chapter is showing his lifestyle since his conversion and showing that the gospel that Paul preached did not come through being taught it by some person. Instead, it came by divine revelation from God. He makes mention of the fact that he didn't go up to Jerusalem immediately after his conversion and sit down and have somebody just explain things to him. He went into Arabia, into the deserts, and for three years he stayed there and just had God supernaturally begin to explain things to him. And then he mentions in verse 18 of the first chapter that after three years, this is three years after his conversion, he went up to Jerusalem and he saw Peter and abode with him just 15 days. Well, 15 days certainly is not enough time to get the everything completely explained to you. Again, Paul is just acknowledging that he had some contact, but it certainly wasn't sufficient to say that he just had men teach him this gospel. The point that he's making is that this was a divine revelation. And if they're going to counter his revelation, then they're going to have to stand against God because it didn't come through man. It was not an acquired knowledge. It was something that was supernaturally imparted unto him. And that's the point that he's making. And what this does, it verifies that the gospel he is preaching is not a human gospel. Therefore, there is no part of it that can be taken away. I'm sure that some of his critics, these legalistic people, came and probably said some things like, well, you know, Brother Paul has been a great blessing. He's probably done a lot of good for you, but, you know, he just doesn't have the perspective. He doesn't have the knowledge that we do, etc., or whatever. I've certainly heard things like that a lot of times. 
And actually, that can be more damaging than for a person to just come out against you totally and try and totally discredit you. In other words, they were saying, yes, there's truth here, but it's just not completely right. Well, Paul is leaving them no option for that. He's saying that this came supernaturally from God, and I haven't added to it or subtracted from it, and so therefore, if you're going to try and add to it or subtract from it, then you are going to have to be standing against what was supernaturally communicated unto me. This isn't human. It's not natural. It was supernatural. Accept it or leave it. And that's the point that he's getting at. So that's the background. He goes into the second chapter. He's still continuing this same theme is what he's doing. And in the second chapter, he brings out a number of things here. He's uh, continuing to show that his gospel that he was preaching was not human in origin. It was divine. And he brings out the fact about Titus, who was a Gentile that Paul had brought into uh, belief in the Lord Jesus. And he went up to Jerusalem and took Titus with him. And Titus was not compelled to be circumcised. And Paul makes special mention of this. I'm sure that one of his points is that he's, he's showing by his actions that circumcision is not essential for salvation. And he used Titus kind of as a trophy in that sense. And he exposed Titus. Uh, that's probably not the right word here, but uh, he, was, he was revealing to the uh, Jerusalem church that even though Titus had not been circumcised, that he was a believer, and he presented him to the Jerusalem uh, elders under these um, under this criteria, and they accepted him. And so what this was, it was kind of like a test case. He was showing them that this man had been genuinely converted. I'm sure that Titus was a, a tremendous example. Of course, Titus is the one that the book of Titus was written to. He became the first elder of the church at Crete. And so this man had a tremendous work of God going on in his life. And I'm sure that the Jerusalem elders could see that he was a transformed person, that he had the uh, fruit of the Spirit in the operating in his life. And so uh, it helped them to see that, yes, a person could be regenerated and truly changed and filled with the Spirit of God without being uh, circumcised. And so by Paul bringing Titus, then the elders accepting him, that was quite a statement, see, that uh, the gospel, as Paul preached it, was correct. It was incorrect the way that these legalistic Jews had been countering him and saying that circumcision was necessary for a person to be born again. So Paul brings that out, and then he also talks about that the eldership not only accepted Titus, but they embraced Paul also gave him the right hand of Christian fellowship, which is talking about, you know, cooperation in the ministry. And so he's drawing on the Jerusalem eldership here, the home church basically, saying that they've approved it also. So his purpose in making these statements to the, Gen uh, to the Gentiles here, the Galatians, is to tell them that these arguments that you're hearing against grace are not accurate. Even the elders of the Jerusalem church have accepted Titus as a believer without being circumcised. That's contrary to what the legalistic Jews were trying to tell the Galatians. And he said also the Jerusalem church had embraced Paul and embraced his ministry and gave him the right hand of Christian fellowship. They didn't add to what he was teaching or take away from it. So he's using these things to verify his gospel and to show that the perversion that was coming into the Galatian churches was incorrect. It wasn't even sanctioned by the Jerusalem church. It wasn't just Paul that was doing this and preaching the gospel by himself. The Jerusalem church also agreed with Paul in these areas. 
So in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, Then, after 14 years, or then, 14 years after, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and took Titus with me also. Now, this instance that he's talking about, he says that it's after 14 years, and we aren't sure if that's actually talking about 14 years after his conversion. Verse 17 in the first chapter talks about right after his conversion that he did not go up to Jerusalem uh, to them which were apostles before me, but I went into Arabia and returned again into Damascus. So there was this period of time that's generally thought that it was three years that Paul spent in Arabia just having God supernaturally communicate things unto him. Then in verse 18 of the first chapter, it says, After three years I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and abode with him 15 days. So in chapter 2, verse 1, when it says, Then 14 years after, we don't know if he's talking about after his conversion, as mentioned in verse 17 of the first chapter, or if he's talking about 14 years after his first visit to Jerusalem, which was mentioned in verse 18 of the first chapter. I'm not sure which one of these it is. There's at least five different times in Scripture that Paul definitely went to Jerusalem. The first one was uh, when he visited um, Jerusalem after leaving Damascus, approximately three years after his conversion. And that's what was mentioned in Galatians 1.18. The second time is recorded in Acts chapter 11, verses 27 through 30. And this is when Paul and Barnabas were in Antioch, and there came a prophet through Agabus who prophesied that there was going to be a drought over all of the land of Judea. And when the believers heard this, they took up an offering, and they sent this offering to the saints in Jerusalem for their relief during this famine. And they sent it by the hands of Barnabas and Paul. And it doesn't really say anything about what they did there, but it is very clear that Barnabas and Paul left Antioch and went to Jerusalem with this offering for the Jerusalem church. The third time mentioned in Scripture that Paul went to Jerusalem was in the 15th chapter of the book of Acts when Paul went there to discuss this issue about was circumcision necessary for being born again. That's what the whole 15th chapter of Acts is devoted to. And uh, there's a lot of information there. I have a number of footnotes on that. I have a footnote on the very first verse, I believe, of Acts chapter 15, verse 1, that will go into quite a bit of explanation about circumcision, about where it uh, first was instituted, and all of these kind of things. The fourth instance where Paul visited Jerusalem was at the end of his second missionary journey. That's recorded in Acts chapter 18 and verse 22. And then there was a final visit when Paul... Uh, went to Jerusalem, and this is where he was imprisoned, and uh, he uh, eventually wound up in Rome through this. So we don't know if the instance here that he's talking about in Galatians 2.1 is one of these five instances, or it could possibly be another instance that just simply wasn't noted in Scripture. My personal belief would be that it is one of these five instances. If it was the time that uh, Barnabas and Paul took this offering to Jerusalem to relieve the saints there, the one that was recorded in Acts chapter 11, verse 27, If that was the instance, well, then this little passage of Scripture right here in Galatians 2 would give us quite a bit more information about what went on during that period of time. Because, again, in Acts chapter 11, it just says that Barnabas and Saul were the ones that sent the relief. Uh, The relief was sent through their hands to Jerusalem. It doesn't give any explanation. It really looks like it would fit more into the instance in Acts chapter 15 where Paul and Barnabas were the delegates that were sent by the church at Antioch 
to talk to the Jerusalem Council and come back with a ruling on whether or not uh, the apostles felt that you had to keep the Old Testament law, specifically the act of circumcision, to be born again. It's much more consistent with that. And if that's the same instance, well, then these passages of Scripture here in Galatians uh, give us one bit of information that was not recorded over in Acts chapter 15, and that is that Paul said that uh, when he went there, he communicated the gospel that he preached privately to those who were in reputation so that he wouldn't run or had run in vain. In other words, he first of all called the elders together and presented this to them privately before he went publicly before this council in Jerusalem and shared the whole thing. And I'll be making some more mention about that, but that certainly was not explained over in Acts chapter 15. So we don't know exactly which one of these uh, occurrences it was. My personal opinion would be it was probably the one recorded in Acts 15 at this council in Jerusalem. Uh, Paul's companions on this visit were Barnabas, and I've already written uh, footnotes about Barnabas at Acts 4.36, and then there was a um, Titus also went with him, and that's mentioned right here in the third verse. Titus was a Gentile believer who had not been compelled to be uh, circumcised, and Paul took him, I believe, kind of as a trophy, and to show the Jerusalem saints the uh, Spirit of God working in a man who had not conformed to this Jewish ritual, and by observation they'd be able to see that God had totally changed this man, and there was fruit of the Spirit in his life, even though he hadn't conformed to their rituals. And so this is what he's talking about here in the second chapter, verse 1. In verse 2, he says, And I went up by revelation and communicated unto them that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to them which were of reputation, lest by any means I should run or had run in vain. When Paul said that he went up by revelation, he's just referring once again to the fact that he wasn't going up uh, and telling them something that he had learned from man, but he went up and communicated what God had given him through direct re revelation, direct from the Spirit of God, not coming through another man. This is the same theme that he had in the first chapter. And then he went on to say uh, in this same uh, verse that he had communicated this gospel privately unto them that were of reputation. Now, you know, Paul... Uh, certainly never compromised the gospel, but this is really a good um, proof of what his heart was. Paul, Paul's heart was to bring peace and harmony with the gospel. Now, it certainly doesn't always do that. There was a lot of opposition. Paul was thrown in prison, and he never compromised. He never shrunk back from that. But as much as he could, he was trying to bring peace with it. You know, over in the book of Corinthians, when he was talking to them, 1 Corinthians uh, he was saying that he had become all things unto all people so that he might by all means win some. Paul tried to minister to people where they were, and he recognized that this issue about circumcision and keeping the Old Testament law was a hot issue. And rather than come into the Jerusalem church and just, I mean, uh, air all of this publicly and possibly put these elders into a position where they were embarrassed or uh, they felt like that they were being criticized or whatever. Paul wanted to go to them personally and convey to them what he was really saying and get it across without them having to fear what the people were thinking, how this was affecting others, etc. And it shows that Paul really had a desire to walk in unity and in harmony. 
Now, Paul didn't compromise the gospel. And as a matter of fact, this whole book of Galatians is very strong in that area. But I do believe that it's important here that we recognize that there was the effort made to make peace with these people. I have seen some people take scriptures, such as some of those here in Galatians, that are very strong, and I mean nearly harsh, in a sense, communicating the gospel. And I've seen some people that just took these things to an extreme to where they actually gloried in offending people. They presented things nearly as offensive as they possibly could and somehow or another took pleasure in the persecution and the rejection that came because of it. Well, that is not the attitude that Paul had. Again, Paul didn't compromise the gospel. And it can be supposed that if these Jerusalem elders would have rejected what he was sharing with them after he gave them his very best shot, you know, at trying to explain and communicate the gospel unto them. It can be supposed that if they would have rejected it, that Paul would have done exactly what he told these Galatians to do over there in the first chapter in verses 7 and 8, where he said that if anybody preaches another gospel, regardless of who they are, even if it's an angel from heaven, let them be accursed. I believe that if the Jerusalem church would have totally rejected the gospel, there is reason to believe that Paul might have shaken the dust off of his feet and gone on. But that didn't happen. The point that I'm making is he made the attempt, and it was successful, to go in and try and mend fences and present this in a way that it would not be offensive, that they would understand his heart and understand what he was doing. And I believe that Paul is to be commended for that. Again, I believe that we should try and emulate this example. We need to recognize that, hey, some of the things that we share are offensive to people. And we need to do what we can to try and soften that blow. And if there's a way that we can communicate to them personally, privately, like Paul did, well, that's certainly not uh, compromising the gospel. I believe that this was wisdom on Paul's part. It was not... um, It was not a compromise in any way. I think it was a good example. These leaders here that were in uh, leadership that he's talking about, those that were of reputation, he goes on and mentions those by name in the ninth verse down here. And he's talking about James, the Lord's brother, who was the overseer of the Jerusalem church. And then John, this is the apostle John that was one of uh, Jesus' apostles, and also the apostle Peter. And so these are the three leaders of the Jerusalem church that he communicated privately to. There could have been somebody else uh, present, but specifically those. And so here was Paul communicating with them. So this is kind of like the big four together. And, you know, there's a lot that probably could be said from this, but the scripture doesn't give a lot of detail. But it could be speculated that, you know, what was this like to have these four leaders of the church? Really, the, the four, it's like the four corners of the church that the foundation was built upon there in conference. I don't believe it was all bad. I don't believe it was all confrontational. I believe that to get these guys together that were so full of the love of God and the calling of God, it would have been an exciting time to be present and witness what was going on there. In verse 3 it says, But neither Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. And so this is what I mentioned that I believe Paul brought Titus with him specifically to this Jerusalem council, if it is the one recorded in the 15th chapter of the book of Acts. I believe he brought Titus just kind of as a trophy to show them what God can do in a person who was not circumcised, who had not submitted to all of the Jewish laws and regulations, and yet he was full of the Spirit of God. One of the key words here in this verse 3 is that it says that Titus wasn't compelled to be circumcised. 
You know, the word compel means that you force somebody to do something against their will or at least against their first choice. It, was, it would not be their preference to do it. Paul said he wouldn't do it against Titus' will. Now, in another example, Paul took Timothy and he did circumcise Timothy. And because of the offense that it might have been to the Jews, that was specifically the wording that was used in Acts chapter 16, verse 3. And so it's possible that if all things would have been equal, that Paul would have also taken Titus and would have uh, circumcised him for the same reasons. But when Titus expressed some kind of a desire not to be circumcised, or maybe he questioned and it says, do I have to be? Well, Paul didn't compel him to do it. Now, again, Paul was trying to keep from offending people if it was reasonable. But when he saw that it was an issue, he was not going to force that on Titus. And also, he brings into this, in the fourth verse, he said that he did it because of false brethren, unawares brought in, who came in privately to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage. So another reason, this may have been another factor, it might have been that Titus just simply was questioning, why do I have to do this? But certainly one of the issues that Paul brings up is that he knew that the Jews were looking for someone. Maybe they had heard about Titus. Maybe Titus at this time was already being groomed for ministry and was one of Paul's elite that followed with him. And they had heard about it, and specifically they were trying to check Titus out to see if he had been circumcised. And when Paul knew what their intent was, it says that he gave place to them no by subjection, no, not for an hour. That's just simply saying that he didn't yield to them any at all. And so this is one reason that certainly Titus was not circumcised. If it was going to be something that would not have been an issue, Paul might have circumcised Titus just to keep from offending anybody who wasn't really walking in the same revelation. But when people were going to make an issue out of it, Paul, I mean, he just wouldn't do it. And see, there's a principle here that there are certain things that we can do, that we have freedom and liberty to do. But with when everything is normal, you know, you don't you flaunt that liberty. For instance, you know, there's just so many things. Uh, there's so many religious traditions today about uh, certain styles of dress, about certain things. There are things that we have freedom and liberty to do. But if it's going to be offensive to people, I don't believe that God would have us go around and just try and offend people. But on the other hand, if somebody is going to make an issue out of it, if somebody's going to say, you can't preach in my church unless you're wearing a suit and a tie, and man, you can't say that you're saved, well, that's the kind of thing that I might just make an issue out of if they are going to make it a, a matter of life and death, heaven or hell, whether you're saved or lost. I might sit there and preach without a suit just to show them that this is not something that's necessary. Well, see, in a sense, this is what Paul did here with Titus. He did not compel him to be circumcised. He didn't intentionally try and offend people, and yet when somebody's religious traditions were trying to substitute for or add to the gospel, then Paul would not allow that. Paul didn't yield to pressure uh, under any, any circumstances like that. If it was voluntary, yes, but if it's demanded, no, Paul would not do it. And so Paul brought Titus to Jerusalem to show him to the Jerusalem church and, and reveal the uh, anointing of God that was in his life and to show them that it is possible to have the Spirit of God operating in you without keeping the Old Testament law. 
And so in verse 4, he said he did this because of these false brethren. And again, this is the same legalistic Jews that he had mentioned in the first chapter of Galatians, the ones who were perverting the gospel and saying that unless you're circumcised, you cannot be saved. And these false brethren, it says they came in unawares. You know what that means? That just means that they were secret. They came, and either they came under a false pretense saying that they were there just to worship and fellowship with them, or they literally snuck in, not telling where they were from. One, one way or the other, they came in under disguise. They came in under deception. Their true intent wasn't revealed. And Paul goes on to say that they came in privately to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage. They had a mindset already. They had already judged that what Paul was preaching, that you didn't have to keep the Old Testament law, specifically circumcision, they had already judged that that was wrong. And they came in not objectively wanting to find out what the truth was. They came in looking for something that would prove their preconceived ideas. Now that is wrong, wrong, wrong. And when Paul saw this, he didn't yield to him one moment. Let me also just interject this. You know, the issue that they're talking about, Paul brings it up a number of times right here in this book. There is no doubt that the issue they were talking about was specifically the right of circumcision. Now, it was beyond that in scope because if they had to keep the right of circumcision, well, then also they had to keep other Mosaic laws and rules and regulations. And so the application certainly was broader than this, but this is the main thing that they were arguing about. And it says that they came in to spy out their liberty. Now, this is a little blunt, but this is exactly what these scriptures are dealing with. I think you need to see what he's talking about. If they came in to spy out their liberty, whether it was true that Paul was, was allowing people to convert to Christianity without going through the rite of circumcision, how do you find out those kind of things? Well, basically, you have to go spy on somebody, and you can't find out if a person's circumcised or not by looking at them in normal circumstances. You know what I believe was happening here? Literally, these legalistic Jews, these supposedly holier-than-thou people who were coming down there to straighten out these pagans who were doing everything wrong, they came down and they were peeking in the latrines at Titus and at others. They were trying to get a glimpse and find out if these guys are really circumcised or not. Now, you may think that's a little crude, but apparently that's exactly what was going on. And so, in an attempt for them to be holy and to enforce all of these holy laws, look at what they were doing. They were actually spying on people. They were operating in immorality and indecency, immodesty. And so here they were basically committing a worse trespass than they were accusing Paul and his people of in an effort. I mean, are all in the name of holiness, all in the name of righteousness. You know, I mean, the hypocrisy here is just amazing. And I see the same thing happening today. There are some people that, you know, want to argue over water baptism. They want to argue over whether you do it in the name of Jesus or whether you dip or dunk or whether you sprinkle or, or just hold them under until the person really repents or, you know, whatever. And they want to argue about all of these forms, which to them is such a holy issue. It's so important. And yet in the, in the process of trying to establish this, they'll get angry at you. They'll scream. They'll yell. I mean, I've had people get so mad and nearly hit me because I disagreed with them over one of these doctrinal issues. 
And you know, Jesus said in the 13th chapter of the book of John, he says, By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, that you have love one for another. First uh, Corinthians chapter 13, it says that the greatest of all of these things is love. We've got to seek love. We've got to pursue love. And on and on. So love is definitely one of the cardinal issues at force. And yet many times people are willing to totally neglect the area of love, walking in unity with your brother, to, to enforce some minor detail, some little legalistic point of their doctrine. And, you know, it's just as hypocritical as these Jews who were supposedly going to Antioch to straighten out these so-called Christians who weren't living holy. And in an effort to straighten them out, they had to become peeping toms. They had to become immoral themselves. You know, it just doesn't work that way. If you have to be immoral to straighten somebody else out, maybe you ought to reconsider a few things. Maybe you aren't doing this exactly right. I tell you, there was a lot of hypocrisy. If these people's hearts would have been pure, they would have been able to see through that. They would have been able to see that, hey, this is certainly not the way that God would have me to do these things. And so these Jews came in, it says specifically, that they came so that they might bring them into bondage. They were there looking for fault. This happened with Jesus many times in his ministry. It said that the scribes and the Pharisees, they came and they listened so that they could take hold of his words, so that they might have something to accuse him with and bring back to the chief priests and uh, scribes, Pharisees. And here was Jesus preaching these tremendous words that were changing people's lives. He was healing people and great miracles were happening. And yet these, these leaders, these scribes and Pharisees, were not receiving the benefit of it because they came there looking for fault looking for problems. Well, that's exactly the way that these Jews came to Antioch and were coming against them because they were they came there with the wrong attitude. They were not objective. They didn't come there with a the right heart. Paul said that we gave place by subjection, no, not for an hour. Now again, Paul uh, tried to deal with people where they were. And if it was just a matter of somebody not understanding and Paul uh, violating somebody's traditions, he would try and accommodate that and not be offensive. But when he saw the intent of these people, that they came with malicious intent, boy, he didn't submit himself to that, not for a minute, is what this is saying. You know, I believe it's really important here uh, for you to get the intent, uh, the uh, complete meaning of what Paul was saying here. When it says here that they yielded not uh, to this, not for an hour, or gave place. The word there meant literally to be weak or to yield. When Paul says that he gave place, it means that he didn't yield anything to these people. He wasn't weak towards these people. And how do you do that? Well, it says by subjection. We gave place by subjection. No, not for an hour. You know what Paul is talking about is that when somebody, like say for instance in Paul's situation from the Jerusalem church, these are delegates, come there to uh, question something, to check into an issue. You know, there are many people that would have just embraced them because of where they came from and would have given them authority, would have recognized them, given them authority, etc. And once you do that, once you recognize this person and give them that kind of position and of authority, well, then they can deal a lot of misery. They can cause a lot of havoc in a church. Paul is saying that he didn't give that to them. He didn't recognize these people. He didn't yield anything to them. You know, I've seen this in the churches that I've pastored before. There was an instance where under uh, 
compulsion from some of the other elders. They felt like we needed some more elders. We needed to recognize somebody. I prayed about this couple that they wanted to put into eldership, and I did not feel good about it. I, d I didn't have a physical reason. They actually were wonderful people. They were some of the very first people to embrace me. They had defended me before, so it wasn't something that I felt threatened by them. They actually were friends. I just didn't feel that it was right. And yet, because I didn't have a physical reason, I overrode what was in my heart, put them into a position of eldership, and I mean, it was just a matter of weeks until the whole thing turned. They hated me. They tried to kick me out of that church. They lied about me, told stories that I had stolen money, that I had lied, that I had done all kinds of things that were just, I mean, they were ridiculous. And uh, those people, once we recognized them, put them into that position of eldership, they caused a lot of damage in that church. And I realized that if I would have never given them that recognition, if they'd have just been a member of the church, they wouldn't have had any authority to do that. They wouldn't have been able to cause near the problem that they did. I believe that's the reason that the Scripture says to lay hands suddenly on no man, neither be partakers of other man's sins, 1 Timothy 5.22. Paul was giving Timothy instruction there, and basically he's just saying, don't ordain anybody. Don't give them recognition authority prematurely. You know, pray about it. Make sure. Uh, you you need to not put a novice in a position of authority. Well, see, Paul was really smart in this area. Paul, when people came, they probably came highly recommended from the Jerusalem church, but Paul didn't give them any recognition. He didn't give them a place, a position of leadership. You know, an immature minister, in an effort to walk in love and to extend friendship and fellowship to people, many times we'll just take people into their church and make them Sunday school teachers, put them into praise and worship, even put them into eldership, deaconship, things like this, in an effort to get them involved. That's a, that's a, uh, a method that is used often to get people involved in church and things like that. But what you're doing is you're actually giving that person uh, place you are giving them, by submitting part of your authority and leadership unto them, you're giving that person a place in that church that can allow them to sow discord. Now, I'm not saying that this means we ought to have just one-man shows and we should not trust anybody. No, there's a time and a place to do it, but we just need to be careful about it. And we can see that here with Paul. Paul did not yield quickly to people. These people came in, their attitudes were all wrong. They came with the wrong motives, but Paul was sharp enough that he knew what was going on, and he didn't submit to it, not for a minute. Amen. And in verse 5, it goes on to say that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. Now, this is also very important here. He didn't yield to these people. He didn't give place to them or yield to them any at all. But why? Because he was jealous? Because he was insecure? Now, see, you need to analyze your motives. Paul here said that the reason he did it was so that the truth of the gospel might continue with them. It wasn't personal. It wasn't because of some petty personality problem on Paul's part. It wasn't because he was insecure and didn't want to recognize anybody else. Now, it's very important that you get this, because if a person misunderstands what I'm saying, this could cause you to be cynical and to just say, I'm not going to trust anybody, etc. Well, that's not what I'm talking about. It, it depends on your motives. If your motive is pure and you're saying, I'm doing this because I'm really not convinced that this person is ready for leadership yet. I'm doing this so that the truth of the gospel will prevail and succeed. See, if those are your motives, well, then you're correct 
in withholding that leadership role, etc. But if you're doing it because of personal motives, if you're doing it because, boy, I don't like this person, this person can preach better than I can, and somebody might like them better than me. And what's going to happen to me and what's going to happen to my job? Maybe they'd rather them be the pastor instead of me. Well, see, those are the wrong motives. Uh, before you do anything, you ought to deal with those motives. You know, like Jesus said over in Matthew chapter 7, before you try and cast a beam out of someone else's eye, you need to get rid of that little speck out of your own. So certainly the motives are wrong if, if that's the kind of thoughts that are going on. But Paul here is saying that he did it not for selfish motivation, but so that the people could continue in the Word of God, that they would not have the Word of God uh, hindered in their life in any way. In verse 6, he says, But of these who seem to be somewhat, again, he's talking about this Jerusalem council, I believe, 15th chapter of the book of Acts. It says, Those who seem to be somewhat, whosoever they were, it maketh no matter to me. God accepteth no matter man's person. For they who seem to be somewhat in confidence added in conference, added nothing unto me. You know, Paul here is basically saying, he's talking about Peter, James, and John. We can see that in the ninth verse down here. And he's talking about these three leaders of the church, the three greatest leaders of the church outside of Paul of that day. I mean, these were the heavyweights. I don't know who you would consider to be the greatest leaders today, but whoever it is, you just think of them and then think of yourself in their presence. And how would you respond? Well, there's a lot of people that would be awestruck. There's a lot of people that would be really intimidated around them. I guarantee you, it certainly would make you, uh, you know, cautious about proclaiming your gospel in front of them. What if you said something wrong? It makes you uh, more self-centered in analyzing what you're saying. You know, one of my employees here recently just hired a hall, and uh, he had been talking to me about it, and he went and held a, a service where he ministered the word and prayed for people. And we'd been talking about it and discussing it. And the day that it came time for him to do that, I came walking through and I saw him. And I said, well, tonight's the night, huh? And we got to talking about this. And then pretty soon he looked at me and he says, you aren't coming, are you? And I said, well, I really wasn't coming. I had something else I had to do. But, I mean, he told me, he says, please don't come. Please don't come. He says, I could never minister if you're there. Well, I understand what he's saying. And, see, I've been around people that I respected and it intimidates me because you get to thinking, are they, am I saying this right? Are they uh, approving or disapproval? You know, the fear of man brings a snare. I think that most of us, if you would really be honest, if you were standing in front of the most, uh, the three most powerful men in the church on the earth today, and if you were standing in front of them, the tendency of many people would be to uh, be intimidated by them. But Paul here is saying that those people, says whoever they were, it doesn't matter to me. God doesn't accept any man's person. This this isn't said out of pride or arrogance. It isn't Paul putting down other people and saying that he didn't esteem other people. Paul's the very one that told us that we need to esteem others better than ourselves, etc. Paul loved these people. He was walking in a godly type of love. But it does reveal this, that Paul, when it came to communicating the gospel, he was so convinced that what he was saying did not come from man, that it didn't matter if it was Peter, James, and John. It didn't matter who it was. He was not afraid to share anything because he had it directly from God himself. He had it by direct revelation. He didn't learn it from some man. He didn't have any reservations or questions about the authenticity of it. And boy, this is powerful. 
This is one of the things that made Paul so convincing because he was so convinced. You know, before we can minister to other people and share the gospel effectively, we've got to know that what we're sharing is not just man's doctrine. We've got to know that what we're saying is true because I can promise you when you share the word, somebody's going to challenge you on it. Somebody's going to criticize you. And if you're one of these that flip-flops, vacillates back and forth between opinions and you say one thing when you're with one group of people and one thing with another, I guarantee you aren't going to be effective. God's not going to really use you and people won't follow that. There needs to be an authoritative voice. It, just like it says, I believe it's in 1 Peter chapter 4, it talks about that if any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. That means the mouthpiece of God. And that word oracle there was ascribed to like the Holy of Holies, the very place that the Ark of the Covenant was with the testimonies in it. It says if you're going to speak, speak just like it's the Word of God. You, get, you need to go to God's Word and know what you're saying is from God. And then if it is then you shouldn't be afraid. You shouldn't be intimidated by anybody. It doesn't matter who it is. Paul's given us a very good example here. This is not a statement of, of rejection or condemnation of these people. Rather, it's a statement of how secure he was that what he was saying was from God. And when he shared it with them, it says that uh, they added nothing to him. They're talking about to his message. In other words, they didn't say, well, Paul, you have it 90% right. Here's another part. They couldn't add anything. Here's the people that walked with Jesus personally, and yet they couldn't say anything. It's my own personal opinion that I believe that not only could they not add anything to it, I believe that they were just uh, overwhelmed with the revelation and the power and the anointing that was in the Apostle Paul. Later, over in uh, one of Peter's epistles, Peter was talking about Paul. And he was talking about our beloved brother Paul who writes of some things that are very hard to be understood which those who are unlearned and unstable rest. That means they wrestle with those things. But the truth is, see, Paul, he went on to say that uh, they wrestle with it as they do other scripture. That's over in Second Peter in chapter um, 3. And so Peter was there talking about Paul and saying about the revelation that he had. Paul, I mean, Peter was showing that he was amazed at the revelation Paul had and that he had even, there were some things hard to be understood, but he bore witness in his heart. I really believe that the elders of the Jerusalem church were super impressed with Paul. And not only did they not add anything to it, they probably took a tremendous amount of notes and added a lot to the things that they were saying. Paul's revelation was awesome. And so his point that he's making here is, is that he said when he went to the Jerusalem church and showed with them what he was preaching and explained it to them, they didn't add a thing. They didn't take away a thing. In other words, it was complete as was, just the way Paul was presenting it. And that's the reason Paul could make these statements that he did over in Galatians chapter 1 about if anybody, even an angel, preaches something different to you than what I've preached, let him be accursed. Well, I tell you, this, is, this has got a lot of important... Uh, precedent for each individual minister, but it really verifies the gospel that Paul did not get this from men. What he was saying is something that was direct from God. We can base our lives on it. And the New Testament church, the early New Testament church, uh, the people who walked with Jesus here on the earth, they bore witness with it. They did not add one thing to what Paul had to say. They uh, believed that it was a supernatural divine revelation from God. But contrary-wise, 
In other words, not only did they not add something to what he said, but instead, on the in the opposite extreme, when they saw that the gospel of the uncircumcision was committed unto me as the gospel of the circumcision was unto Peter, uh, let me just skip verse 8 for just a second. I'll come right back to it, but uh, it's a parenthetical phrase. And to get the meaning, we need to continue on. So he said here that the gospel... Uh, of the circumcision was committed unto Peter in verse 9 and when James Cephas and John who seemed to be pillars perceived the grace that was given unto me they gave to me and Barnabas the right hands of fellowship that we should go unto the heathen and they unto the circumcision only they would that we should remember the poor the same which I also was forward to do in other words he says instead of adding something to what they said or in correcting or any of this instead of doing any of that they saw that man God had committed the gospel unto Paul and they extended the right hands of fellowship talking about that they basically embraced him and said boy you are a brother what you're preaching is good we are going to go to the Jews you go to the Gentiles they joined hands there was cooperation and Paul is citing this to bring into uh, remembrance of these people there in in Galatia that the Jerusalem church was preaching the same gospel that Paul was preaching. These legalistic Jews that had come to uh, the area of Galatia and had started trying to add that you have to keep the law and be circumcised, etc. They were, they were renegades. They were out on their own. They did not have the approval of the home church. That was not what Paul preached. It was incorrect. So what he was doing was basically taking away any authority that they claimed to have. Just because they came from Jerusalem, because they had been Jews, etc., that was no authority. Paul had already been had the seal of approval put upon his message by the Jerusalem church. In verse 8 it says, For he that wrought effectually in Peter to the apostleship of the circumcision, the same was mighty in me towards the Gentiles. And this is not saying that there are two different gospels. Uh, it, it mentions there in the ninth chapter, you know, that they should go unto the Jews and, and Paul go unto the Gentiles. There aren't two Gospels. There isn't the Gospel of the Circumcision and the Gospel of the Uncircumcision. It's just talking about that the emphasis was that Paul went to the Gentiles, Peter to the Jews. And, you know, this is really amazing to me because Paul, in, if you would have looked at things from a human standpoint, Paul was the perfect person to go to the Jews. Because Paul was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He knew all of the Jewish customs. He knew the Jewish scriptures. He could have out-argued. He could have out-convinced. I mean, you know, he could have convinced anyone. He was so strong in all of these things that it, in the natural, it just looks like he was the perfect choice to minister to a Jew. And on the other hand, Peter would have been a great choice to go minister unto the Gentiles because Peter was half pagan himself. I mean, some of the things that Peter did, you know, we don't have a tremendous amount of information about that. But Peter was definitely not one of the Pharisees. He was not a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He had not kept the law flawlessly. He had not done all of these things. Peter, uh, he would have been easy to relate to the Gentiles, to these pagans that were out doing all of these things. See, if we would have been just figuring these things out from a human standpoint, that's the way people pick people today. You know, somebody comes off the street and they've been mean and angry and bitter and we just think immediately, well, boy, that's what the kind of people that you need to minister to. Well, you'll be surprised. You know, there's some people that have been, I mean, uh, rough people that God has led me to talk to. The one that's never taken a drink, never smoked a cigarette, never done any of these things. I remember in Vietnam one time, 
And, of course, in Vietnam, sin was just unbridled over there. There was basically no control. The government actually encouraged all types of immorality and and terrible things over there. They felt like it was kind of payment for the GIs, all the hardships they were going through. So there was just a lot of sin. There was very few people living a holy life over there. And I was trying to witness to this one sergeant in particular. And I remember I kept telling him about how important it was for him to be born again. And he kept asking me for my testimony. And I was embarrassed. I didn't want to tell him that I'd never said a cuss word. I'd never taken a drink of liquor. I'd never smoked a cigarette. I thought for sure he'd just laugh at me because, I mean, that was certainly not the average person over there. But after I kept witnessing to this guy, finally one day he just cornered me and he said, Look, did you or did you not get saved? I want to hear how you got saved. And so I finally told him. I was eight years old. The very first time God ever convicted me of a sin, I repented and I got born again. And I've never done any of this stuff. And as I was sharing it with him, I was sharing it apologetically. And, you know, this guy got tears in his eyes, and he just says, there has to be a God. He says, for God to have saved somebody and for you not to have gone through this in this day and age, there has to be a God. And it turned out that that was probably the greatest witness that that guy could have ever gotten. You know, I wouldn't have figured figured that. I wouldn't have picked that. I would have thought for sure this guy was living in terrible sin. And I would have thought that, boy, somebody had to come who had been through the same things he had been through. And yet it didn't work that way. You know, it's just like the scripture says over in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that God chose the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty and base things of the world, and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not, to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. You know, God just chooses differently than we do. Matter of fact, I think that in a way he delights in taking sometimes an ignorant person to reach a great intellectual. And sometimes he'll take a great intellectual to reach an ignorant person. Now, I'm not saying that it has to be that way, but I'm saying certainly there is precedent that it has happened that way, and uh, it certainly can happen that way. You know, it's it, Paul and Peter are examples. Peter went to the Jews. Paul went to the Gentiles. Exactly opposite what man would have thought, and yet both of them were more effective doing that than they would have doing, you know, what was logical. Well, we need to be led of God. You can't just pick God's calling upon your life based only on personal preferences, background, uh, experiences, talents, and things like that. Well, we've got to go beyond that and begin to recognize that God can do things and does often do things totally different than the way that we think. Verse 11, Paul said, But when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face because he was to be blamed. Now, Paul is beginning to show exactly how adamant he is about this gospel that he preached and how uncompromising he was. Again, he's not doing this maliciously out of an evil heart, but even when Peter, the Apostle Peter, I mean the person that was revered probably more so than any other person in Christendom at the time, when he came to Antioch, Peter, I mean Paul, withstood him to the face because he was to be blamed. And it says that he rebuked him before them all in verse 14. Well, Paul was fearless in this area. And the reason, once again, is just because he knew that he had gotten his revelation directly from God. See, when you've been spending time in the presence of God, when God Almighty has communicated unto you, you won't be afraid of what somebody else has to say. 
When a person is intimidated by somebody else who's got a great reputation and they get intimidated, it's because they haven't been spending enough time in the presence of God Almighty. If you stood in the presence of God Almighty and if God has been communicating unto you, you will not fear man. And Paul didn't fear Peter. When Peter came to Antioch, Paul withstood him to the face because he was to blame. Now, I believe it's important to notice that Paul didn't do this in Jerusalem. He did it in Antioch. You know, Antioch was kind of the base. It was the headquarters for Paul. That's where he left on his missionary journeys from. Uh, It was the church that Barnabas came and got him, and he stayed there and taught for over a year at one time in Antioch. So this is like Paul's headquarters, his home base. Peter, uh, on the other hand, his home base was Jerusalem. When Paul was in Jerusalem, he didn't confront Peter in the same way. Now, there could be multiple reasons for that. I don't know all of the reasons. Paul didn't give them, so I won't try and speculate. But certainly one of the reasons is that, you know, Paul, uh, he was just smart in doing what he was doing. His purpose wasn't to hurt Peter. His purpose wasn't to humiliate Peter. His purpose was for, once again, the furtherance of the gospel. And when it came to his turf, when Peter was on his turf, Paul set things straight and told Peter that, boy, we aren't going to have any of this hypocrisy. See what had happened in verse 12. It says, Before that certain came from James. This is talking about James, the leader of the church in Jerusalem. James, the Lord's brother. It says, He did eat. It's talking about Peter did eat with the Gentiles. But when they were come, these certain that came from James, uh, when they were come, he, Peter, withdrew himself, uh, withdrew and separated himself, fearing them which were of the circumcision. And the other Jews dissembled likewise with him, insomuch that Barnabas also was carried away with their dissimulation. What he's talking about is in the 10th chapter of the book of Acts, Peter went and ministered to Cornelius and his household. Cornelius and his relatives there were Gentiles. And God gave Peter a vision about this sheep being let down with all of these unclean animals in it, which the Jews were forbidden to eat these unclean animals. And God told Peter in an audible voice to go eat, kill and eat some of these animals. And Peter says, no, Lord, I won't do it. And God told him, he says, I've cleansed them. Don't call them unclean anymore. And, of course, this really just messed with the mind of Peter. I mean, a a Jew who had not been accustomed to eating these unclean animals, and yet God was saying, now it's okay to go eat these animals. In other words, these dietary laws, uh, they aren't in effect anymore. It's okay to eat these things. Peter was thinking on this, and while he was thinking about it, it turned out that men came from Cornelius and told him that God had appeared to Cornelius in a vision and had told him to send to Joppa and ask for Peter. And he would come and preach to them and tell them the words that they needed to hear to be able to believe and receive eternal life. And all of a sudden, God bore witness in Peter's heart that this is what the vision meant that before Gentiles were unclean. It was unclean to associate with them. It was unclean to eat with these Gentiles. And yet God showed Peter that he should not call any man common or unclean. And so that's exactly what Peter told Cornelius. He repeated this, and that was his interpretation of what this trance, this vision meant. So Peter shared the gospel with Cornelius, and they got born again and baptized in the Holy Ghost. But in the 11th chapter of the book of Acts, you can see that he also ate with these people. As a matter of fact, in Acts chapter 10, I believe it's verse 48, 
the scripture says there that uh, Cornelius and his household, that they invited or uh, implored Peter to remain there with them uh, for a period of time. It says in the last part of this 48th verse, it says, Then prayed they him to tarry certain days. The scripture doesn't say what Peter did, but apparently he did stay there some period of time because in the 11th chapter of Acts, uh, the Jerusalem church got wind of what had happened, and they called Peter in, and here's what they said unto him. Uh, They said, You went in to men uncircumcised and did eat with them. That's in Acts chapter 11, verse 3. So Peter had eaten with these Gentiles. Apparently he did stay there some period of time, and he actually fellowshiped and ate with these Gentiles. And the Jerusalem church called him on the carpet about it. Well, Paul has given us a little bit more explanation about this here. That's what he's referring to. In other words, he's saying, Peter, you're to blame. You knew better than this. You should have stood up. You should have told the people that, hey, adherence to these Jewish laws is not necessary for salvation because God revealed this to you in a vision, and you acted on it. You were led by the Spirit, and you knew in your heart that it was the right thing to do. But when the legalistic Jews came, and you knew that they were going to criticize you because you were breaking tradition, then you separated yourself from these Gentiles that you had been eating with. You had been fellowshipping with them, but when the Jews came, then you separated yourself and ate separately. In other words, he says that's hypocrisy. That's what this word dissimulate or dissemble means. It means hypocrisy. It's talking about that it was a lie. It was a a deception. And he says that the other Jews who were with you dissembled so much that even Barnabas was carried away with their dissimulation in verse 13. And, of course, Barnabas was Paul's companion. He was Paul's right-hand man. And Paul is saying that even Barnabas was affected by this. And so Paul rebuked Peter right in front of all of this. In verse 14 it says, When I saw that they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel, I said unto Peter before them all, If thou being a Jew livest after the manner of Gentiles and not as do the Jews, why compellest thou the Gentiles to live as do the Jews? That's a little bit of old English, but basically what he's saying is, he says, if you can go in and live like a Gentile, you don't have to adhere to all the Jewish laws, then why are you trying to tell a Gentile to start trying to live like a Jew and observe them all? If you aren't observing them, why are you preaching to somebody else to do it? You need to practice what you preach. Paul basically called his hand and called him a hypocrite in front of all of these people. Well, now this is amazing. And again, I don't, you know, this doesn't make me think less of Peter. It just makes me think that Peter made a mistake. It shows me that in an area that he was weak in this area and he was uh, fearing what the other people would think and he compromised. But on the other hand, let me just say this, that I believe this also says something positive about Peter. Because Paul rebuked him openly and there is no inference anywhere in Scripture. There is not a single shred of evidence to show that Peter ever hated Paul for this, resented him for it. As a matter of fact, as I just quoted over there in Second Peter chapter three, Paul talked about I mean Peter's mentioned and said, Our beloved brother Paul, who has written these things that are hard to be understand understood, that those who are unlearned and unstable wrestle with as they do other scriptures. Peter even said that what Paul was writing was Scripture. He called it Scripture, and he called him our beloved brother Paul. I believe that this is to Peter's credit that Peter apparently humbled himself. Now, Peter made a mistake, but when he was confronted, there is no indication that he rebelled. You know, Peter had a tremendous amount of authority. Now, again, he was a little bit off of his home turf. 
He was on Paul's turf. I believe that's one of the reasons that Paul waited until he was at Antioch to confront him. But nonetheless, Peter could have made it miserable for Paul. Peter could have taken offense over this. He could have caused a rift in the body of Christ and on and on. None of that happened. So this doesn't really make me think less of Peter. It just shows me that he's human. He made a mistake. He was fearful of what other people thought. But when he was confronted, he humbled himself. Uh, Actually, this shows me a lot of good things about Peter. And it also shows me that Paul wasn't afraid to confront anybody. And Paul, I mean, even if it had been an angel from God, he would have set him straight. Amen. Paul knew what he had been given was from God, and he didn't compromise one bit. He would, in love for other people, he would go out of his way not to offend them. But, boy, if they were going to make an issue out of it and try and change the gospel, change what the truth was, Paul wouldn't submit to that for a minute. In verse 15, he says, We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles. You know, basically all he's saying here is that, uh, you know, we were born a Jew and we weren't uh, like the Gentiles. We were the ones that had the covenants of promise. In verse 16, he says, Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Well, Paul here is beginning to get into some doctrinal things. Prior to this time, he basically has made his point about that what he's saying is true, and he's explained that the reason it's true is because it came by revelation, and he's given some history and shown some things about how that it didn't come being taught by man, it came by revelation of God. Now he's getting into some doctrine, and the rest of this chapter right here has a lot of material in it that could we could spend a lot more time on it. But he says that Peter knew this. Peter knew that just because he was born a Jew that he didn't have any access to God any more than a Gentile did, that the only way to come unto God is through faith. He says that a man is not justified by the works of the law. Boy, Paul made that point in the book of Romans, chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5. Very powerful. A lot of material on that. He says we are not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. Notice the terminology here. He didn't say the faith in Jesus Christ, but faith of Jesus Christ. And he says it again in this verse. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ. And then down in the 20th verse, he says that I now live by the faith of the Son of God. Not faith in the Son of God, but faith of the Son of God. Now some people may think, well, what's the difference? Well, I believe that, yes, we do have to put faith in Jesus. That's not technically wrong to say that. But these scriptures are uh, presenting the fact that we are justified by the faith of Christ, the faith of God. Actually, what happened was it was God who believed and brought salvation into being. And when you get born again, you can't get born again with just a human faith. You know, there is a human faith and there is a supernatural faith. And sad to say, most people are trying to use their human faith to believe and receive from God. And it can't be done. When you're you're relating to God, you have to believe for things that cannot be seen. And a human faith, see, is limited to what it can see, taste, hear, smell, and feel. When I grew up, I was always told that it's faith to sit in a chair that you never sat in before. It's faith to ride in an airplane when you don't know what makes an airplane work, etc., 
Well, that is a faith. In other words, it's not a fact, it's a faith, but it's a faith that's based on sense knowledge. For instance, if you could see a chair that looked like it was about to fall apart, if it only had three instead of four legs, and if it was leaning over and the thing was all torn and beat up, and I said, sit in this chair, you wouldn't do that, because see, it's based on sense knowledge. You don't have that. But uh, if I tell you that to believe in God whom you haven't seen, see, that has to be based on a faith that's beyond sense knowledge. That kind of faith actually comes directly from God. This is what the scripture is saying in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, when it says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. Talking about that faith is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. That faith doesn't come from you. God literally imparts his faith to you, and that's how you get born again. Boy, that's a powerful truth. I know that some people may not understand the importance of that, but to me it's tremendously important. Because, see, most people have this impression that they have little faith, uh, that their faith is puny, that it's just not able to produce, etc. And they see their faith as inadequate. But the truth is that when you got born again, you weren't born again with human faith. It was the faith of God that was imparted unto you. Romans 10:17 says, So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. When you hear the word of God, God literally imparts his faith unto you. And if you will use it and take that gift of faith that's put on the inside of you and then use that faith to say, yes, I believe and I receive, well, then you are actually using the faith of God. It is your faith because he shared it with you, but it is his faith. And what that means is that it is not inadequate. It is not puny. It is not less than required. It's more than enough. God's faith is sufficient. You don't have a faith problem. You've got all the faith you need. We just need to begin to start understanding how what we've got and how to use it and the laws that govern faith, etc. Well, I believe that's a powerful truth. See, Paul, twice in this verse and then down in the 20th verse, he talked about the faith of Jesus Christ, not just faith in Jesus Christ. It is true. You put faith in Christ, but also you have the faith of Jesus Christ. And he was telling Peter, he says, you know that this is the way it is. He says, you can't be justified by your own effort, by what you do. You have to just receive it as a gift. And God gives you this supernatural faith to believe for these things that you cannot see. And he says, that's what we've done. We were justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. Now, the works of the law is used, that terminology is used a number of times here in the 16th verse, and uh, it's used a number of times in Scripture, and it's always talked about in a negative uh, connotation. Basically, what this is talking about is that you can't be saved through your own effort, through the things that you do. But there are works of faith. In other words, this is not saying that it just doesn't matter what you do. It's just saying that you can't be saved by what you do. But what you do is important. And there are positive works that are talked about. For instance, over in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3, and also 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 11, the scripture there talks about the works of, uh, of faith. And so you can do things motivated out of faith, and those things are positive. It talks about a work of love mentioned in scripture. See, the whole thing basically comes down to your motivation. If you are doing something, a work, an action, if you're doing something to earn God's favor, then that's a work of the law, and that will not profit you anything. 
if you are doing something, not to earn God's favor, but because you believe you've got God's favor and you love God and you're just doing it out of faith, out of love, because of thanksgiving to God. Well, see, then that's the proper motivation. If a person is giving their tithe because, God, I've got to do this, and God, see what I'm doing now, will you please lay off of me? Will you please bless me? Will you please help me? Because look what I did. Well, that's a work of the law, and that will profit you nothing. But if you give, saying, Father, thank you. You've already given me everything. I love you so much, and I want to give back to you. I don't know how much to give in the Word. It says to give 10%, so here's my 10%, and I, I want to give even more. God, I just love you, and I want to give unto you, and I want to see your kingdom established. You've given so much to me. Here, I want to give this to you. Well, see, that's a work of faith. It's basically the same thing. You could give the exact same amount, but it's the motive behind it. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 it says that if you give your body to be burned or all of your goods to feed the poor and don't do it motivated by God's kind of love, it profits you nothing. And there are a tremendous amount of people that have not received the benefit on their giving because their motive was all wrong. It was a work of the law instead of a work of faith. And see, this is the way it is. When people go to preaching, legalism, when they go to preaching, things like Paul here was dealing with circumcision and keeping of the Old Testament law. Today, you know, most people don't recognize that they're legalistic because they don't believe in circumcision and they don't believe in keeping the Ten Commandments and offering a blood sacrifice and the new moon and all this kind of stuff. They may have changed the outward actions, but it's still the same attitude. It's like going down the same road to the same destination. You just got a different car. Instead of doing circumcision, now we believe that you got to be water baptized a certain way. Or if you, if you aren't water baptized in the name of Jesus for the remission of sins, and you'll die and go to hell. Or we'll preach that if you don't wear your hair piled up on your head, if you wear any makeup or if you wear any jewelry, you go to hell and on and on and on. All of these things go. And there's people preaching that you've got to do these things. It's your actions. It's works of the law that make you right with God. That's wrong. And that's what Paul was preaching against. And he was telling Peter, he says, you know better. In verse 17, it says, But if, while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves are found sinners, is therefore Christ the minister of sin? God forbid. Now this verse is really problematic. I read quite a bit of stuff about this, and really nobody seems to have uh, much insight on what this is saying. The way that I look at this, and I'll just offer this to you as andeology, you know, in the 16th verse, he was talking about grace. Now, it's not your works. It's not what you do. It's the faith of Jesus that makes you right with God. And all you got to do is accept it and just receive this gift of salvation. Well, one of the criticisms, anytime you say something like that, people are going to say, well, then you're saying that these people who are supposedly justified by grace, and yet they're out there and they still got sin in their life? Are you saying that God's caused this? Are you saying that if your gospel uh, is, if it's really the right thing, then what about these people that are taking, you know, your teaching and yet they still got sin in their life? Are you saying that that's God's will for them? Well, my answer to that would be no, of course not. I believe that that's what Paul is referring to here. I believe it's kind of old English terminology for saying, you know, if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we are found sinners... Is Christ the one that's producing that sin? No, of course not. In other words, Paul just, you know, bringing up um, kind of a straw man. Uh, he's bringing up an opposition that he knows his critics would bring up and say, what about these people that are living in sin? You know, a friend of mine, I've 
sure I've mentioned this before, but when he started preaching on grace, some of the people in the church, uh, some of the elders, the deacons in the church started smoking right outside because he had been telling that, hey, you don't go to hell for smoking a cigarette. You just smell like you've been there. But God still loves you. You know, you don't have to not smoke to go to heaven. And because of that, some people just started smoking. And some of the people came to him and said, see what you've done? Here you are preaching grace, and look, these people are smoking. You know, his answer to them was, he says, are they smoking any more than they were before? Well, no, they were already smoking. It was just that they weren't doing it in public. Nobody knew about it. All they had done is lose the condemnation about it, and they were just doing the same thing that they'd been doing. Actually, it was the first step towards deliverance. They now were quitting. They weren't lying about it. There wasn't any hypocrisy about it. At least it was out in the open. That was the first step towards getting free from that. But see, this is the same thing that I believe Paul was dealing with here. If you go to preaching grace and somebody who received that message all of a sudden has some sin in their life, somebody's going to say, well, did, did see, your grace teaching caused that. Are you saying that this is God's will for them? Is God the one that's producing this sin in their life because they're free to live in sin? Paul is saying, God forbid. No, that's not what he's saying. Verse 18, for if I build again the things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. Paul is just saying that, hey, if I go back and live in sin, the thing that I turn from, that I've, I've destroyed that old lifestyle, if I go back and live in sin, I did it to myself. In other words, it's not the message of grace that causes people to live in sin. You know, I can promise you this, that if a person receives a message of grace, they will sin. And I know some people just, you know, like, how could that be? How could you admit that? Well, because I can tell you this, that the people who who receive the message of legalism and works, they still sin. All of us sin. I actually believe that a person will sin less through grace. Now, there may be at a period of time that, you know, they go out and they kind of try their grace. Paul was definitely rebuking that here in the Galatians. I'm not saying that it's going to cause great perfection of holiness, but I will say this, that when a person does sin, instead of running from God, they'll run to God if they've understood grace. A person who's under legalism will actually run from God. They'll feel so upset and so uh, defiled that they'll wonder how God could ever accept them back. Uh, If we go out and live in sin, it's not God that's caused it. We've done it to ourselves, and it's a wrong decision. If you really understand grace, grace will cause you to live holy. In verse 19, he says, For I, through the law, am dead to the law, that I might live unto God. Now, this is a radical statement that I dealt with quite a bit over in the book of Romans. The book of Romans shows that the Old Testament law, it prophesied that there was coming a day of grace. It prophesied that there was going to be justification by faith. And so the Old Testament law actually uh, paved the way for this teaching of grace. Actually, the Old Testament law was God's method of bringing judgment upon sin, and Jesus took that judgment and through the Old Testament law suffered that punishment and that rejection, that separation from God. So the Old Testament law has been satisfied. The demands have been met, and so really through the law, in accordance with the law, we are now free from the law because we have already been punished. It's just like a person that committed some kind of a sin. Uh, you know, some kind of a transgression in the legal system. If they went to jail for that uh, thing and paid their price, well, then when they get out, they can't ever have to pay that price for that sin again. They've already paid for it. Or in the spiritual sense, see, Jesus paid for our sin. It's already been paid for. The satisfaction of the law has been given. 
It's been satisfied through what Jesus did. And so we are legal. It is legal for us to be free from the law. In verse 20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Boy, that we could minister volumes on this. And, of course, I've mentioned this scripture hundreds and hundreds of times in this series on life for today. But these are some powerful truths. Paul talking about his recognition that he was dead to himself, dead to his old life. When he got born again, he became a new creature, 2 Corinthians 5.17. And it's his new born-again self that now rules and dominates. It's not really self-esteem, it's Christ-esteem. He's esteeming Christ on the inside of him, not just his old natural ability and self. He's learned how to, how to do everything from his union with Christ. You know, like I said, we could just spend hours literally trying to go into this, and I simply hadn't got that time to do it, but this is a powerful statement. Paul said he was crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, he lived, yet it wasn't him. It wasn't really his old self living. It was Christ living through him. Jesus Christ literally comes and lives on the inside of us when we get born again. I tell you, there is a powerful truth here that I think most of us haven't gotten the full impact of. Over in Colossians chapter 1, verse 27, it talks about Christ in you, the hope of glory. That this was the mystery that was hid. It was sealed up. It was saved, special for us. Christ in us, the hope of glory. Most Christians can say that, you know, just kind of off the tip of their tongue, not even think about what it's saying. Most people don't really see Christ on the inside of them. They look at it as some kind of a, you know, just a theory, some kind of thing that in principle this happened. They don't look at it in a reality. But in reality, Christ is now living inside of every born-again person. He never leaves us. He never forsakes us. He's with us all of the time. If we had a true revelation of that, I promise you, it would change your behavior. It would change the things you do. It would change your emotions. If a person really understood that, there's no way that you could be lonely if you really understood and by faith appropriated this presence of God. It would end that. There's no way that we would come and approach our circumstances and all of the problems that stare us in the face and have this attitude of, Lord, I'm only human. God, I don't know what to do. Instead, you begin to start saying that, boy, inside of me, God Almighty lives. Christ is in there. I have the mind of Christ living on the inside of me. And you would approach your problems differently. And yet it wouldn't be you. It would be Christ in you. See, you would have confidence that He is in you, that God Almighty lives in you, that God will flow through you. I tell you, when I first started ministering healing to people, when I first did it, I just saw me as doing it. But, you know, I I just forced myself, and by faith, a few times, I was able to squeeze out a little of the anointing of God, and I began to start seeing miraculous results. And over a period of time, I've come to realize and, and believe and rely upon the fact that it's not me laying hands upon people. It's God Almighty laying hands on people through me. And because of that, I expect results. I expect to see miracles. It makes a difference. You know, to a person looking from the outside, they can't tell any difference. They don't see anything different. But boy, I see something different because I know that it's not me. It's Christ living in me. When I stand up to minister in front of people, when I first started, I thought it was me. And I thought it was God going to bless what I said. And so I would prepare and I'd make all of my notes and then I'd hope that God could use it. 
Well, over the years, God has turned that around to where I no longer see it as being me that's doing the talking, but it's Christ in me, flowing through me. It doesn't happen automatically. It doesn't happen overnight. But the Lord is flowing through me. I see things. I deal with things that way. My whole life is based on this. This is what Paul is saying. See, a person who's into legalism, a person like these legalistic Jews that were coming and talking about, you've got to be circumcised, you've got to keep this law, you've got to do this, they were looking on the outward appearance. They're trying to change the person from the outside in. Paul is saying, I was changed from the inside out. It's not me anymore. It's not my flesh, my outward man. I'm not looking at that. Instead, it's Christ in me. He's flowing in me and out of me, through me, to other people. Boy, there's a powerful truth here. Our union with Christ, if people could understand that, it would take care of depression, loneliness, low self-esteem. It would take care of fear and intimidation and on and on. See, this is the reason that Paul was able to confront Peter right to his face because he wasn't doing it as Paul confronting Peter. He was doing this as the Lord Jesus. He, he was God through him, flowing through him, ministering unto Peter, just exactly the same as Jesus turned around and he said, Satan, get thee behind me, for thou savorest not the things that be of God. Over in the 16th chapter of the book of Acts, or Matthew. See, Jesus did that to Peter, and through Paul, Jesus did the same thing once again to Peter. Paul would have actually been operating in pride and arrogance if he would have stifled it, if he would have squelched that and says, God, I can't do this. This is the Apostle Peter. Well, then that would have been Paul living instead of Christ living through him. Well, these are powerful truths. You know, if you're dead to yourself and letting Christ live through you, then you just aren't uh, subject to temptation, to intimidation, to fear, to all of these kind of things. You know, if you threaten a dead man, how can you threaten a dead man? Tell him, say, quit preaching the gospel or we're going to kill you? A man who's really died to himself is going to say, great. Because like Paul said, for me to live is Christ. To die is gain. I'm going to go to be with him. It's even better. How can you intimidate a guy like that? If you're one that would be intimidated, if somebody says, if you preach the gospel again, you're losing your job, it's because you aren't dead to yourself. You haven't really understood and recognized Christ in you. And that union, you're still too dominated uh, by yourself and by promoting yourself instead of promoting, instead of promoting Christ in you. We need to be dead to ourselves, to our own ambitions, to our own fears. This is what Paul is talking about right here. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God. Notice he lives by the faith of the Son of God, not faith in the Son of God. That's what I was talking about earlier. He literally had God's faith imparted unto him. That's how he got born again. And he was using God's supernatural faith. Romans chapter 12, verse 3 says that every man has been dealt the measure of faith, not a measure of faith. There aren't different measures of faith. I don't have a certain amount of faith and somebody else has more. If you're born again, you were dealt the measure of faith. If the measure that Paul was using was the faith of the Son of God, then that means, guess what? You and I have that same thing. We both have the same amount of faith that Jesus had when he walked this earth. When Jesus calls Lazarus from the dead and raised him from the dead, you and I have that same faith. It's the faith of the Son of God that was given unto us. It's just not our human faith that we're exerting towards God. This was God's gift to us. He gave us the faith of his Son and put it in our heart. And we can use it. If we will begin to start getting that attitude, I guarantee you, you'll begin to start expecting a greater response. 
you would expect Jesus' faith to produce better than your puny faith. Well, the truth is you have the faith of the Son of God living on the inside of you. In verse 21, he says, I do not frustrate the grace of God. For if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. Boy, I tell you, this is an amazing statement. This is amazing. Paul is saying that if you are trying to be justified in the sight of God through your effort, you are frustrating the grace of God. And in a sense, in effect, Christ is dead in vain. That means of no purpose, of no benefit to you. This is repeated over in uh, Galatians chapter 5. It says, Whosoever you are justified by the works of the law, uh, Christ has become of none effect unto you. Well, what a strong statement. You know, I see a lot of people today that in their Christian life, they're praying and asking God for healing, for prosperity, deliverance, joy, peace, salvation of others, whatever. They're praying and they're asking for things, but they don't see any effect of it in their life. It's just in a sense, just like that, you know, it doesn't work for them. It's like Christ is of none effect. Well, you know, following this reasoning backwards, if if Christ is of none effect in your life, then I believe that the problem is that you haven't really understood the grace of God. You aren't dead unto yourself and aren't letting Christ live through you. Well, I tell you, we need to get hold of this truth. We need to recognize that, man, we cannot earn anything from God based on our performance. It's a gift. That's the point that Paul is making here in the book of Galatians, and he's making it very effectively. In the next chapter, chapter 3, we'll start on that in our next tape, and Paul is going to really lower the hammer. I mean, he's going to start explaining to him, you've been bewitched. Talking about a demonic deception, satanic deception, if you have operated in law. And I tell you, brothers and sisters, many of us today, I believe probably most of us today, have fallen prey to this. I believe that everybody, to some degree, has areas of their life where they are operating in legalism. Some people are actually operating in it to the degree that they can't even be saved because they're trusting in their own holiness and their own goodness. But then there's all kinds of variations. There's some people that have believed in the Lord as far as their eternal salvation goes, but when it comes to their day-to-day maintenance with the Lord, they really are trusting in their own goodness. And because of it, Christ has become of none effect. It just isn't producing in their life the way that it should. If we are trusting in our own works, we are frustrating the grace of God. And man, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do away with anything Jesus came to do. Jesus came and died for me because I couldn't do it myself. Jesus paid for my sins because I couldn't pay for it myself. Jesus did all these things for me, and I do not want to frustrate it. I want to humble myself and say, Father, I receive right standing with Jesus by grace and by mercy, not because I deserve it. Praise God. What a wonderful truth. We'll take up next time in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 1.